Let's move on to cardiac markers. Dr. Lutovsky, before we talk about troponins, I'd like to discuss a bit about CKMB. It seems to me that CKMB has become sort of an ancient relic, a thing of the past. In, in what situations would a CKMB be useful in 2011? Well, we still run CKs along with our troponins. Um, we often get the CK result actually earlier before our troponins, so it often tells us right away that you know the, the patient's chest pain really is ischemic. We can start antiplatelet and antithrombotic earlier because our CK comes back about 15 minutes earlier than our troponin for some reason. The other time that a CK may be of value is because of the long half-life of troponin, it may not clear for 7 to 10 days. If someone gets discharged from the hospital within 3 days of an acute infarction or 4 days of an acute infarction, they come back with pain, then the CK, which will have cleared earlier if it's arise, you can sometimes diagnose re-infarction or re-ischemia with an elevation of the CK. So that would probably be the, you know, the two reasons why CKs are still a valuable biochemical marker, in my opinion. Dr. Lutovsky, do you always do two sets of troponins on your patients who you suspect of ACS who haven't immediately left your department because of a STEMI? For example, let's say our elderly patient with this presumed new left bundle branch block is not taken to the cath lab, is not given thrombolysis, and her pain started 15 hours ago instead of four hours ago. Presumably, since the peak sensitivity of troponin for MI is about 10 to 12 hours, you would only need to do one set of troponins. Do you ever only do one set of troponins? What's your take on that? I, I do, but it's not common. You remember that the majority of patients who present with acute myocardial infarction present within about three hours of the onset of the chest pain. So the overwhelming number of patients who present with chest pain have a recent onset of chest pain. And in that patient population, it would be wrong to assume that a single troponin excludes myocardial infarction. That's, so that's so majority of our patients, if they present with you know, a, you know, a chest pain for an hour or two or three and, they, and their, their pain has disappeared, those are the kind of patients you really need to hold for a second set of cardiac markers eight, nine, ten hours after the onset of their chest pain. Do I ever rely on a single set of cardiac markers? The answer yeah, I do. It's not common, but I do. If the pain was yesterday and they come in today because they want it to be checked out and the deponent is completely negative, that will reassure me and I, and I, and I won't do a second set, uh, set of cardiac markers on those patients if the pain was yesterday or the day before. I don't think there's any value in holding them two hours or four hours later for a second troponin. I won't do that. So will I rely on a single troponin? Absolutely, if the pain was really remote. The patient who had their chest pain yesterday and it lasted for two, three hours and then has had absolutely no symptoms since then, that sounds perfectly reasonable just to do one troponin. What about the patient whose pain started yesterday and they've had ongoing chest pain until they present to the emergency department? For those patients, would you rely on one negative troponin? It would be very, very unusual for someone to have ischemic pain for 15 hours, constant pain and not have some kind of ECG change or biomarker change. You'd be able to write that patient up and submit it to the New England Journal of Medicine if they ever had to. That would be hard to imagine. I'm not sure if you agree with me. You know, constantly. But the important thing is that if pain's coming and going, coming and going, then you're talking about an unstable angina kind of picture, in which case, sure, the markers can absolutely be negative. While having 15 hours or more of constant chest pain would be very unusual for an MI, as Dr. Lutovsky said, the pain that comes and goes for the last 15 or 20, 24 hours, as Dr. Lutovsky said, could represent unstable angina, 
However, you never know if that unstable angina can develop into an MI at some point during that 15 hours. And so in that case, some people would argue that you should be doing two sets of troponins. There was a large study in the US and Canada that showed that using chest pain duration alone as a criterion for obtaining a single cardiac marker resulted in missed MIs. If you look at some older studies, for example, in the Canadian Journal of Emergency Medicine in 2002, one set of markers was not acceptable even if the chest pain had been going on for a while. Now, in 2011, things are a little bit different because we now have the new ultra-sensitive troponins, which according to the AHA guidelines say that if the onset of pain is within six hours, the new ultra-sensitive troponins can rule out MI in low-risk patients. These newer ultra-sensitive troponins are pretty impressive. They have very high sensitivity at presentation. In fact, at three hours post-presentation, their sensitivity is between 98 and 100%. So these newer assays are much more sensitive. They turn positive much sooner than the old assays, but they're not very specific. So be careful assuming that the diagnosis is MI. So if you're using these ultra-sensitive troponins, it's probably safe to do a three-hour post-presentation troponin, repeat it again at six hours post-presentation, and if those are both zero, then you can safely rule out MI. That being said, you should find out what kind of troponin your lab is using and discuss with your cardiology and emergency group what the standard practice is when it comes to troponin at your institution. In terms of deciding whether to repeat the troponin or not, remember that if you have a troponin level that's zero, that's very different than having a troponin level where there's a small leak that's below the cutoff level. So if your first troponin is very low, below the cutoff level, but still there is a measurable amount, those patients you always need to repeat the troponin to see where it's trending. The other benefit of an ultra-sensitive is not so much the rule out is that you can then, if the troponin is already positive two or three hours, then you can start therapeutic interventions earlier. Then you'd, then you'd go ahead and give the clopidogrel and you'd start the antithrombotic agents earlier. And uh, you know, theoretically with the, with the earlier intervention, the morbidity mortality would go down. Okay, so we've talked a little bit now about the ultra-sensitive troponins. The standard troponin T and troponin I that we've been using for a few years What's the difference between troponin T and troponin I in a nutshell for the practicing eMERGE doc? I think actually there's very little difference between troponin T and troponin I. There may be a difference in, in patients with renal failure. Yeah, so more patients with renal failure have an elevated troponin T Correct. versus less patients with, have an elevated troponin I in that population that have renal failure. But, but otherwise, I think they're probably pretty similar. I agree. And, and with respect to the renal failure, both troponin I and troponin T can be elevated. We don't know what it means. It may not mean they're having acute coronary syndrome, but we do know it predicts a worse uh, prognosis. Right. And that's the key is not to totally commit the elevation in either troponin to just the fact that they have renal failure, but that that patient is at risk for worsening outcomes. And so our suspicion for degree of badness has to be higher. I, at least at St. Mike's, uh, we have a dialysis unit, and so having access to their old troponin valve is extremely helpful because it's, if it's always positive and they come in with chest pain and it's about the same, uh, you may be less concerned having that information. So when it comes to patients with renal failure and troponins, 
Remember that patients with renal failure are at particularly high risk for MI in the first place. While an elevation in troponin I compared to a previous level is more reliable than troponin T in the dialysis patient or the patient with chronic renal failure not on dialysis, any elevation of either troponin T or troponin I predicts a poor prognosis and increased 30-day mortality. So be cautious with any patient with renal failure who presents with a story that's compatible with ACS with any bump in their troponin. So this brings up the differential diagnosis for elevator troponin in general. What are some of the other things that can present with chest pain in particular that can elevate your, your troponin that we need to think about? Well, troponin goes up in pulmonary embolism, goes up in patients who, are, who may have pneumonia and are septic. It can go up uh, post-cardioversion. If you're defibrillating somebody with atrial fibrillation, for example, it can go up post-cardioversion. It may, it may go up in patients who have uh, myocarditis, pericarditis syndromes. So, uh, unfortunately, it's not specific for acute myocardial infarction. Mm-hmm. The, other, the other big one is uh, acute heart failure. I mean, anything that causes a few you know, myocytes to stretch will release some troponin. And, then, and again, there's probably no condition where troponin has been not found to be predictive of adverse events, and heart failure is actually one of them. Now, it becomes a bit tough in that patient who comes in who's elderly, who has risk factors, who has heart failure and a small troponin rise. Is that actually a non-STEMI? Or is it just they've got acute heart failure? Yeah. And those I mean, patients are getting admitted for the most part anyway. Correct. And traditionally, we are calling those patients STEMI and failure rather than failure and, and, and borderline troponin rise a second to the failure. I mean, those patients almost always get anti-ischemic and anti-thrombotic therapy. Sometimes, one of the pitfalls I see with the residents sometimes is you'll get a troponin and it's below the cutoff, but it's not zero. And you'll get a second troponin that might be a tiny little bit higher than that, but still below the cutoff. And the resident says, well, it's below the cutoff. It's not an MI. They can go home. Can you just tell us a little bit about uh, some of the things we should look out for in terms of troponins that are not zero, but they're also not above the normal cutoffs? So I, I'll worry about those patients. I'll, if there's an incremental rise in the troponin, even if it's below the cutoff, the lab cutoff, I will still worry about those patients. And that's a perfect patient that, who should be held for a third set of cardiac enzymes. And we'll do that occasionally. Because in our, in our hospital, the cutoff is 0.12 for the troponin. Occasionally, you get patients who have 0.04 and it goes up to 0.09. And those are the patients I worry about. I'll hold those patients for a third set of cardiac enzymes. But those are the kind of patients I think it would be uh, hazardous to send those patients home assuming that it's you know a non-significant trivial rise if you're going to order a troponin it takes you down a pathway of subsequent follow-up and provocative testing and uh, we've already talked about the likelihood ratios of how good that provocative testing is if we're just talking about your basic exercise stress test and and leading them down a pathway of false positives carries some degree of harm as well so the radiation let's say associated with pci it's not uh, benign, right? So if there's some consideration of harm and no likelihood of benefit, we have to be cautious of ordering the troponin I right off the start. next section, we're going to discuss all the medications that we should consider for our ACS patients in the ED, starting with oxygen and ending with lytics. And then we'll have a chart in the written summary reviewing it all.
Dr. Menser, up until recently, every patient I saw with potential ACS, whether their O2SAT was 100% or 95% or 90%, they all got oxygen. Sometimes these patients come in by EMS with high flow oxygen. Recently, there's been a lot of talk that hyperoxia might be bad for cardiac patients, which we discussed a little bit in our cardiac arrest patient on episode 12 on ACLS. Can you explain the reasoning behind this potential badness for hyperoxia in cardiac patients? And practically speaking, when we should be giving supplemental O2 and when we shouldn't? The original indication for oxygen dates back to the 1970s. So the articles that supported oxygen therapy in ACS uh, patients was dated. And some of those started articles, which are still actually referenced in the HA guidelines, uh, are animal studies. So although there was a perceived benefit, it was an association of benefit where oxygen was given and the patients did well. Patients might have been animals. And in the newer studies where we look at human data, there was conflicting evidence, meaning uh, in terms of human data, some patients actually did worse with uh, oxygen therapy and acute coronary syndromes. And so when we look specifically at these associations, if the patient's hypoxic, it is very useful to provide oxygen. That's still the case and has not changed. If the patient's oxygen saturation is less than 94%, it's still reasonable to give oxygen and they actually suggest four liters of oxygen. Fine. If the patient's oxygen saturation is greater than 94, then you do not need to provide supplementary oxygen because in those patients, there is no benefit. And there may be some disease-oriented outcomes that change. So STs might actually come down when oxygen is provided. But that does not confer a benefit in terms of patient-oriented outcomes uh, in terms of morbidity and mortality. It has been shown that high flow oxygen or high concentrations of oxygen therapy causes marked reduction in coronary blood flow and myocardial oxygen consumption. So it makes sense not to give high flow oxygen in patients who are setting well in the setting of ACS. The AHA guidelines for indications for supplemental oxygen in the setting of ACS are first, if the patient's obviously short of breath, second, if there's signs of acute heart failure, third, if the patient's in shock, and fourth, if the oxygen saturation is less than 94%. Dr. Lutovsky, we know the cheapest way to save lives in, in patients with ACS is to have them chew 160 to 320 milligrams of ASA. Just a very practical question here. If a patient's unable to chew aspirin for whatever reason, what options do you have to give them the ASA? Well, you could give them a rectal suppository. Okay, so for the patient who's vomiting, for example, with their ACS... It, it, it is an option, exactly. Okay, so we know that the number needed to treat for ASA is 19. One very good functioning of aspirin to save a life at 30 days. Right. So, Dr. Lutovsky, we talked a little bit about nitroglycerin before. What role does nitroglycerin play in ACS? What route should we be giving it, and when, when should we not be using nitro? In the 70s, we used to think that acute myocardial infarction was, was caused by vasospasm. And then we started doing cath studies, et cetera, et cetera. And then we find out that, you know, it was really a thrombus that caused the overwhelming majority of acute myocardial infarctions. So, you know, so nitrates themselves have very little impact on mortality reduction in acute myocardial infarction. But uh, nitrates do have a role in certain scenarios in acute coronary syndromes. For example, patients who have congestive heart failure and hypertensive nitrates play an important role for both pre-load reduction and after-load reduction. Hypertensive, heart failure, really a mainstay of therapy. 
I think the patient who comes in with chest pain secondary to cocaine use, nitrates an important mainstay of therapy along with benzodiazepines. In that particular scenario, you're worried about vasospasm, nitrates have an important role. Those, I think, are the two most important indications for nitrates. Heart failure in the setting of hypertension, heart failure for whatever reason, for preload, afterload reduction, and in patients with cocaine. You run of the mill, chest pain, we often do it for symptom control, but very little benefit, and really no proven mortality reduction in acute myocardial infarction. I think symptom control, if they're actually having acute MI, the nitro, if they have spasm and superimposed on the thrombus and they're opening and closing the artery, the nitro may help to keep it open, along with your antiplatelet antithrombin, and then giving them morphine. I mean, overall, if you can decrease their catechols and calm them down a bit, probably more the morphine than the nitro will do that, then perhaps the extent of infarction will be slightly less. But I echo your comments, Eric, there's no evidence for either nitro or morphine to decrease morbidity or mortality, and there may be some risk if we cause hypotension. Now, having said that, there is another scenario that I'll, I'll use nitrates, and the patients who come in with STEMIs that we thrombolyze, and we still thrombolyze many patients with acute myocardial infarction, if they fail to reperfuse then we'll start them on an intravenous nitrate uh, pending their transfer to a center that can do a cardiac catheterization. Dr. Lutovsky, in, in episode number four on acute heart failure, we talked about giving IV nitroglycerin. What should we be telling our listeners and reminding them about the dose of nitroglycerin in someone with heart failure or with ongoing ischemic chest pain? Well, in the patients who are, are in bad heart failure with high blood pressures, you want to give a lot of IV nitrates because nitrates will reduce preload at low doses, but they'll only reduce afterload at high doses. So start at 10 to 20 mics per minute and increase by 10 mics per minute every 10 minutes until you get a response. And I don't really have a maximum. I sometimes will ask the nurses, uh, so this is patient-dependent, if they tolerate nitrates, i.e. we're going to start with a sublingual spray of 0.4 milligrams, which is 400 micrograms. You do that every five minutes times three while you're getting the uh, nitro infusion ready. And that represents, if you think about it, it's 400 micrograms over five minutes. That's 80 micrograms a minute. So when I explain that that way, then starting at a higher level for nitrates is actually quite reasonable if the patient has already tolerated 80 micrograms a minute for 15 minutes. So I will sometimes start the IV uh, infusion rate in those patients that have tolerated the sublingual spray quite well at 50. We mentioned morphine as well, that there's no good evidence that it actually decreases mortality. There's actually some evidence in the large registry data that high doses of morphine and heart failure can actually increase mortality. Some people argue that those were patients getting huge doses, like 20 milligrams of morphine. This brings up the question of whether we should be using morphine in our patients who present with chest pain or who have ongoing ischemia. Dr. Femi had mentioned you want to try and break that sympathetic response. What's your take on giving morphine in, in the setting of a possible ACS? Well, so your first part, you mentioned heart failure, and uh, you also mentioned ACS. And there's two registries that I think we're talking about here. One is the Crusade database, which looked at over 20,000 MIs. That was published back in 2005. And uh, that's where the association was made with non-ST segment elevation MIs and morphine. So morphine was administered to... 125 patients and for every 125 patients in the registry and we can argue about how good that data is one patient was killed so the number needed to harm was 125 in the non-ST segment elevation MI population 
In that patient population, I will, if I need an opiate, I might choose fentanyl. I have no evidence for that, but in the absence of evidence of benefit or harm, fentanyl seems like a reasonable choice. It's lipophilic, shorter acting. If they're going to get a complication from it, it happens right in front of you. And uh, yes, you have to dose it more frequently, but there's no known harm for ACS patients. Okay. So Dr. Menser says ACS patient, no morphine, maybe fentanyl. Dr. Lutovsky? Uh, it's very rare for me to use morphine for patients with chest pain, to tell you the truth. For, for, for ACS patients, do I ever use it for STEMI patients? Occasionally, but not as a priority. Not as a priority. That's the important thing to remember. I mean, the best, the best way to reduce patient's pain in STEMI is with a thrombolytic or mechanical reperfusion. That's the best way to reduce patient's pain. That's the priority in therapy. And making sure you give the priorities, the drugs that reduce mortality first. Aspirin clopidogrel, antithrombotics, lytics. Those are the drugs that you should need to concentrate first and give first. And if they're still having pain beyond all that, then a little bit of morphine, a little fentanyl, sure, I think is important. But it shouldn't be the first drug that you, you, you choose is the most important statement I can make. All right, let's talk about the ever-controversial beta blockers in ACS. So when it comes to use of IV beta blockers in the ED for MI, the latest guidelines advise against the routine use of IV beta blockers for ACS patients in the ED because of the increased risk of cardiogenic shock. However, there have been many earlier studies that have showed decreased mortality, infarct size, and reinfarction with IV beta blockers, and that they also may prevent dangerous arrhythmias in the setting of an MI. More recent studies have shown no mortality benefit and no significant improvement of prevention of, of arrhythmias and re reinfarction. Then others say that there may be a mortality benefit, but only in low-risk patients, specifically Killip class 1 patients with STEMI or non-STEMI. So this is all very confusing to me. While I think most of us would agree that we should not routinely be using IV beta blockers, in what situations should we, if any, be using IV beta blockers in the ED? I think there are situations where patients are hypertensive that would benefit from having beta blockade. And those patients, I will say, do not have any contraindications to using beta blockers, which in North America, we do not give beta blockers to patients who come in in heart failure. Some of the evidence that you're referring to came from the COMMIT trial, which was a two-by-two two study of 45,800 patients in Asia, and they gave beta blockers to all comers, which included, unfortunately, a, a population, subpopulation that came, presented with heart failure. Uh, now, we don't do that, but what they found in their study was that there was no benefit to beta blockers. The benefit to beta blockers in the previous studies, the earlier studies, was in those patients where beta blockers prevented malignant tachydysrhythmias, VFVT, and that affected, positively affected, about 20% of the patients. And in the COMMIT trial, unfortunately, they had a 20% increase in their mortality by giving those same patients who presented in heart failure beta blockers. So they essentially wiped out any benefit of beta blockers because they gave it to all comers. In North America, we don't really do that. So I don't really count the COMMIT trial as evidence for or against beta blockers because it doesn't really represent what we do in North America. I think that there still is benefit to giving beta blockers to patients who are, as I mentioned, hypertensive. Uh, and there is some long-term benefit from an article that was, I guess, dates back to 1983 
that represents a number needed to treat of 31. So you have to treat 31 patients with beta blockers and the route can be PO, that's quite fine. You have about six hours to do it, so the patient could be stabilized in that six hours, meaning that we can give them lytics, we could send them to the PCI lab, and at that point give them beta blockers and still be within that six hour time frame. So the benefit is there, number need treat of 31 is pretty good, I would say, uh, not that far off aspirin, and, um, and, and still useful. So I, I, I entertain comments from my colleagues as well. I just, just before we get others' opinions, I just want to distinguish between PO beta blockers and IV beta blockers. That We know that barring the contraindications to beta blockers, that PO beta blockers definitely do have a benefit. So we're talking specifically about giving IV beta blockers in the emergency department up front. Dr. Fan? Yeah, I, I agree uh, with Mark. I mean, unless they're hypertensive, there's really no indication to give IV beta blockers because you may unmask heart failure or shock if you didn't recognize it initially, and then you're really chasing your tail, right? And, you know, the beta blocker we use is not Esmolol, it's metoclolol, which is longer acting, and then you, you may have a problem. And as was said earlier, it's not on your top list of priorities. You really want to get reperfusion therapy started. But I think in individual patients, there can be some value. You know, the whole field has been very clouded since uh, commit, and so enthusiasm has gone down quite a bit. I think the giving a PO dose is not a bad idea as well, because the onset will be a bit slower, and uh, it may not drop for blood pressure. And the main thing is to avoid hypotension in these patients, as, as you know. And, um, you know, these patients do end up being on beta blockers, but in the long run, uh, not all cardiologists are continuing beta blockers forever. And I think the advantage is really in the first few months when they're at greatest risk for arrhythmia. Yeah, I agree. I think what's important is to remember which patients shouldn't get beta blockers. Key. You don't want to give a beta blocker to someone uh, with cocaine-induced myocardial ischemia because then you'll get unopposed alpha-adrenergic activity and then the blood pressure can really go through the roof and you can really get into problems. So don't give it to someone with cocaine-induced ischemia. Don't give it to somebody with acute inferior myocardial infarction with right ventricular infarction. Those patients are really susceptible to AV blocks. 50% of those patients will go on to develop an AV block already. So absolutely don't give it to someone with that kind of myocardial infarction. And don't give it to somebody with a massive, massive uh, anterior MI who's got some early creps because that patient's going to get shocky and you're just going to make the patients worse. So I agree with, with, with Neil. The enthusiasm for beta blockers has gone down significantly. But again, it's not your priority of therapy in, in STEMI. Your priorities in STEMI are reperfusion, reperfusion, aspirin, uh, clopidogrel, and antithrombotic therapy. So the bottom line with IV beta blockers early in the setting of ACS is to consider them in patients who are very hypertensive, but not as a priority of treatment. Remember the risk factors for cardiogenic shock with beta blockers in ACS. They are heart failure, age over 70, systolic blood pressure less than 120, sinus tachy over 110, or a heart rate of less than 60, and an increased time since onset of STEMI symptoms. And as Dr. Latovsky added, you should avoid beta blockers in patients with cocaine chest pain, in patients with inferior MI with possible right ventricular extension, and in patients with big anterior MIs. So let's move on to the second medication that has been proven to save lives in ACS. The first one is aspirin. The second one is clopidogrel. Clopidogrel has been shown to be effective in both STEMI and non-STEMI. Let's first talk about STEMI. Based on the CLARITY and COMMIT trials, the number needed to treat is 15 for a current MI or death. 
For patients who are receiving thrombolysis, the dose is 300 milligrams for patient less than 75 years old and 75 milligrams for patient over 75 years old. For patients who are going for primary PCI, the dose is 600 milligrams based on the OASIS-7 study. How about patients with non-STEMI or unstable angina? Remember that not every patient with chest pain should receive clopidogrel. It's only patients who have ECG changes consistent with ischemia or an elevated troponin. Based on the CURE trial, these patients should receive 300 milligrams of Plavix and consider giving 75 milligrams for patients over the age of 75. These dosages can be pretty confusing. This brings up the value of pre-printed orders in the emergency department. If you don't have pre-printed orders for ACS in your emergency department, then you should sit down with your ED group and your cardiology group and decide on pre-printed orders that have the dosages of clopidogrel for the various indications. Dr. Pham, there's recently been two large studies comparing clopidogrel with the newer, more potent antiplatelet agents, Prasugrel, which is spelled P-R-A-S-U-G-R-E-L, which has been approved in Canada, compares that to clopidogrel, and the PLATO study, which compares ticagrelor, is that how you pronounce it? Mm -hmm. Ticagrelor, spelled T-I-C-A-G-R-E-L-O-R, which isn't available yet in Canada, but probably will be soon, compared to clopidogrel for MI for patients going for PCI. One of these trials randomized patients post-catheterization, so it's not really that applicable in the emergency department, and the other one randomized them up front. Mm -hmm. While there may be some role for these new drugs when they leave the ED, do you think currently there's any role for these new medications for the practicing emergency doctor in the emergency department? Do they have any benefit over clopidogrel? I think the short answer is no, and uh, we have started to use prasugrel. The advantage of prasugrel is that it inhibits platelets in half an hour, which is the ideal drug to use in a STEMI setting, whereas 600 milligrams of clopidogrel takes at least two hours to inhibit your platelets. So you're doing an angioplasty in this patient having MI, you know they got 600 of Plavix, you know it's really not active while you're doing the procedure. It's really to prevent them from getting stent thrombosis after. So what we're doing with our community ER partners is keeping everything the same, giving the Plavix in the ED. If they come directly to us from the field, diagnosed by EMS, and they have no contraindications, uh, then we give them Prasugrel. And so prasugrel was associated with a benefit in re reducing ischemic endpoints, but was associated with excess bleeding, which is why it's not a drug to be given to an undifferentiated patient in the ED. And as you very importantly pointed out, that study was done after the coronary anatomy was known with an intention for PCI, not to someone just presenting with chest pain in the ER. And so you may come across patients on this drug, so it's probably important to be aware of, the patients who were found to have excess bleeding were those who were over 75, previous history of TIA or stroke, or low body weight. So I think in the young patient, it's a great drug, and the older patient uh, should be avoided. The other reason that it's not a drug to be given to all ACS patients is that the rate of bleeding associated with patients who went on for cabbage was huge. So surgeons, cardiac surgeons, hate Plavix. They're going to really hate Prasugrel. The second drug, Ticagrelor, so I should mention that uh, Prasugrel did not show a mortality benefit. The other drug, Ticagrelor, did show a mortality benefit, uh, which again, is the first time in a long time that an antiplatelet has shown a mortality benefit in ACS, not just STEMI, but ACS. 
So there's a lot of enthusiasm for that drug, and you're probably going to see that drug in your ED formulary once it's approved. The advantage of that drug is that it washes out of your system in 48 hours. And so again, the cardiac surgeons will like it. If you load a patient in the ED before you know the anatomy, they end up having surgical disease. They only have to wait two days instead of five days to have their cabbage. What Dr. Pham is talking about here is for patients going for cabbage, it's a contraindication to have had clopidogrel within five days of that cabbage. Now, some of these patients who we give clopidogrel to in the emergency department will eventually have a cabbage. Those patients tend to be patients with left main disease and triple disease, but it's very difficult to predict who these patients are going to be. There is a recent article out of the American Journal of Cardiology in this year called an early and simple predictor of severe left main and or three-vessel disease in patients with non-ST elevation acute coronary syndrome. And it suggests that ST segment elevation of more than one millimeter in lead AVR on admission electrocardiogram is highly suggestive of severe left main or triple vessel disease in patients with a non-STEMI. Patients with this finding might benefit from promptly undergoing angiography and withholding clopidogrel to allow an early cabbage. Dr. Pham is going to talk a little bit about this idea of the possibility of holding clopidogrel in the emergency department for those patients who might have left main and or triple vessel disease. Overall, if you look at all ACS patients, it's about 15% who are going to need cabbage. So that means 85% are going to be derived benefit from the clopidogrel. And even the patients in the CURE trial who went on for cabbage derived benefit from getting a loading dose of Plavix in the ER. So I actually say they should all get Plavix for the most part. The exception would be someone whose ECG is saying, I have left main occlusion, or they're in going into shock, they have heart failure. I would actually still say give that patient Plavix because it's pretty uncommon that a surgeon is going to operate on that patient. It has happened, but convincing a surgeon to operate on someone who's having acute MI in the throes of cardiogenic shock is challenging. And probably that patient's going to be better served by PCI anyway. And if you're going to do that, you like their platelets to be inhibited. So okay. our own approach is to give it to everyone. You could argue not to in that subset. I, I agree. And very few patients actually require their cabbage within the first four or five days anyways. That's a very, very small minority of patients anyways. So the benefit absolutely you know, is, is there to give clopidogrel to everybody with specific indications. A majority of our surgeons will actually, if you push them, operate in two days, three days. If the patient's having refractory ischemia and they have a balloon pump and they're still having ischemia, they'll just operate and accept a possible excess of bleeding. I was just going to add in that uh, this might be a spot for one of the alternate platelet function inhibitors Dr. Pham was referring to. And uh, the reason for that is uh, if you give something that wears off uh, quicker, you only have two days that you have to wait to get your cabbage. And I think, at least in the literature, there's some controversy for people with left main disease as to whether they would benefit more from PCI intervention versus cabbage. And, uh, and so if you're 50-50 and the interventionalist that you refer to is comfortable doing that, then that just encourages us as emergency physicians to pick up the phone, make that phone call, because that might be a very important call prior to giving your antiplatelet agent so that you at least leave the door open. And if they say, yeah, you know what, left main disease or not, I'm comfortable taking this patient, go ahead and give the clopidogrel, then you can go ahead and you haven't really lost much in terms of time. So in the near future, we might see some of these other antiplatelet agents in the emergency department. For now, let's just keep on going with clopidogrel. And uh, whether they're going to maybe get a cabbage or not, 
we should universally give them when if they fit the criteria that we we talked about. Correct. Great. Now let's talk about heparins. In patients with unstable angina, what's your trigger for giving a heparin? Well, again, they have to have ECG changes or positive troponin. They can't just you know have a normal ECG and negative markers. There's no evidence that, that you know those patients benefit from aggressive antithrombotic strategy. I find it extremely confusing when trying to decide which kind of heparin or anticoagulant to give, depending on what kind of ACS patient I have. We have the choice of unfractionated heparin, low molecular rate heparin, and the slightly newer medication, Fondaparinox. You know, many STEMI protocols use IV unfractionated heparin for patients going for PCI because they can turn it off quickly. It has that advantage. Other studies have shown in non-STEMI that low molecular heparin is actually better than IV heparin. And then the Fondaparinox apparently has a lower incidence of bleeding. So there's all these factors that we have to weigh. Can you give us the bottom line on which heparin, which anticoagulant we should be choosing for which patients in ACS? The reason why interventionalists like the IV heparin is because they know that they got it. Uh, whereas the sub-Q injection, especially if a patient's kind of low blood pressure, maybe they didn't absorb the drug, there's an association with fondaparinux with thrombosis, also an association with enoxaparin. So that's why we're a bit skittish about the drugs. Having said that, as an interventionalist, I really don't care what you give them. You can give Fonda, you can give Enox, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to give them some heparin as well. And the nice thing about heparin, as you said, Anton, is you can turn it off with protamine and you can measure its effect in the cathode with the activated clotting time. So that's the only reason we prefer it. It may be less effective in medically treated patients, but invasive uh, care, it's more predictable. So for PCI, it sounds like most of us would go for IV unfractionated heparin. And for patients receiving lytics, it sounds like the benefit of low molecular rate heparin is slightly more, but the bleeding risk is also slightly more than IV unfractionated heparin? Well, a couple of trials have shown the benefit of enoxaparin. The ascent 3 trial and the Extract 25 trials, Allian-Edmund studies, have shown the benefit of enoxaparin. I, I think, listen, I think the decision of which anticoagulant to use, post-splitic or STEMI, is not as important as the decision to use a anticoagulant, period, to prevent infarct-related rethrombosis of the vessel. That's what's key, to get something in there regardless of which drug you use. Mm -hmm. And this is an area where there sh you should not be confused. At 2 in the morning, when you've treated a patient with a lytic or you have an acute coronary syndrome, you should not be confused at 2 in the morning which drug to use. There should be pre-established guidelines of which drug to use in which scenario, whether ACS or STEMI, that everybody agrees on between the emergency physicians and the cardiologists so that you know there's no discussion. You just fill out a pre-printed order sheet with whatever accepted in the institution. That's the key to eliminate any confusion. But I want to know what's best. We don't practice the way the trials were conducted. Right. So Fauna Paranox Oasis, like they can get it in hospital for up to eight days. No one stays in hospital for eight days anymore after an MI. They're gone in three or four. Correct. In the extract trial, they gave an oxyparin for five or six days compared to 48 hours in a fractured heparin. So, yeah. so how right. do you compare apples to oranges? Right. So, but the important thing is that they got something. And that's you know that's what's important in a STEMI patient is that you open up the vessel, but then you got to maintain its patency, so it, there's no reocclusion. Sure. Again, for the indications for these medications are any ECG changes or positive biomarkers. In terms of which medication to give, we know not to give low molecular rate heparin in patients with renal failure. 
That's one deciding factor. If they're going for PCI, it seems like most of the interventional cardiologists will prefer IV unfractionated heparin. There is some literature out there to suggest that in, in the non-STEMI patient and the STEMI patients that receive lytics, that low molecular weight heparin might be a bit better, or fondaparinox might be a bit better than IV unfractionated heparin. So the bottom line is you have these three choices. Knowing that information, you should come up with a protocol in your department that everyone should agree with. Correct. Dr. Pham, you had mentioned very briefly glycoprotein 2B3A inhibitors. Is there any role for these medications in the ED? No. They're expensive. They cause bleeding, and they haven't been shown to be associated with any anti-ischemic benefit compared to just giving them at the time of the angiogram. So, Dr. Latovsky, you have touched upon several times about the management of ACS patients whose ischemia has been induced by cocaine use. Can you just review for us how their management changes compared to the non-cocaine ischemic patient? Well, if you have a high enough suspicion or you listen to the history that the patient has done cocaine, first of all, nitrates have an important role and benzodiazepines have an important role in aggressive use of both of those agents. Beta blockers contraindicated again. You give them a beta blocker, you leave alpha sympathetic receptors unopposed, so these patients can really exacerbate their high blood pressure. So the mainstays of therapy are are benzodiazepines and aggressive use of nitrates. The problem is that habitual cocaine users can develop premature or accelerated arterial sclerosis. So they can develop a STEMI too. So if patients present with SD segment elevations in these patients, I think that you should give those patients an aspirin. And if they don't settle down very quickly with nitrates to reverse the vasospasm and benzodiazepines to settle them down a little bit, those patients really should be sent to a center that can do PCI on them because they may be having a, a, a myocardial infarction as well. So generally speaking, PCI would be advantageous over lytics in the cocaine chest pain. Yeah, patient. you'd be very you know, hesitant to use a thrombolytic in the, in the setting of cocaine-induced chest pain. Very hesitant. You know, the patients often are very hypertensive. They're increased risk of bleeding. And those kind of patients, you want to find out if they have real disease as opposed to vasospasm and uh, find out what the real anatomy is. If they have persistent ST segment elevations, again, that don't settle down very quickly with nitrates. Okay, and Dr. Pham, you work at St. Mike's where mm-hmm. half the populations are cocaine users. It's probably a bit of an exaggeration, but not much. A third. A third, okay. <laughs> Your real-world experience in terms of when you take them to the cath lab, do a lot of these patients have atherosclerotic disease? What's your real-world experience? We usually experience? find a thrombus. It's not just refractory spasm. They have a thrombotic occlusion, so it's usually the real thing. One last point about giving medications in patients with cocaine chest pain. As we mentioned in our episode when we talked about body packers who body pack cocaine and end up with VTAC, the first line medication for VTAC associated with cocaine use is bicarb rather than the usual ACLS drugs. Dr. Lutovsky, we've talked about all these medications for ACS. We've mentioned a few times what the priorities of the medications should be. Can you just review for us the overall for unstable angina and non-STEMI and for STEMI what the priorities of medication use in the EDR? So patients with STEMI need to be brought in, put on a cardiac monitor, 
have the drugs that reduce mortality and reduce morbidity given immediately. Aspirin, clopidogrel, and thrombolytics reduce mortality if thrombolytics happens to be your, your option in the kind of center that you work at. Those are the drugs that reduce mortality. Beta blockers don't necessarily reduce mortality. We've talked about the controversy and should re be reserved for patients who are hypertensive without the contraindications. Patients should receive antithrombotic therapy to chase the lytic and as adjunctive therapy. So the mainstays of therapy then are aspirin, clopidogrel, reperfusion treatment, and antithrombotic therapies. For patients that are being transferred for PCI, obviously you're going to hold with you're going to withhold the thrombolytic, but you're not going to withhold the other adjunctive therapies. For patients with acute coronary syndromes with chest pain, if they have ECG changes or if they have positive proponents, once again, aspirin for all comers regardless of, the, of the ECG changes, but if they have ECG changes and positive biomarkers, then both clopidogrel and an antithrombotic drug of choice, whether it's sinoxaparin or fondoparinox or even a fraction of heparin, I don't think it really matters as long as you choose one of them, would be indicated. So we've talked a lot about medications for ACS, and we're going to get a little bit more into detail about when to thrombolize versus primary PCI for our uh, STEMI patients. Let's talk about this in the setting of this third case. The third case is that of a 58-year-old woman who works as a business executive who presents to your community ED with a one-hour history of crushing retrosternal chest pain radiating to both arms and the jaw that started suddenly during an important meeting at work. She reports feeling shortness of breath and dizzy. She's a, a smoker, and her father died of an MI at the age of 59. On exam, she appears anxious, dyspneic, and sweaty. Her heart rate's 55, blood pressure is 90 on 50, respiratory rate's 22, O2 sat of 93%, and she's afebrile. She has bibasilar crackles and JVD with no murmur and normal heart sounds. An ECG, which is in front of you on the table here, and will be in the written summary for our listeners, shows sinus bradycardia with 2 to 3 millimeters of diffuse ST depression in the inferior, anterior, and lateral leads, with 3 millimeters of ST elevation in AVR and 1 millimeter of ST elevation in V1. A bedside ultrasound shows no pericardial effusion. She's given ASA 160 milligrams to chew, clopidogrel 300 milligrams PO, and she started on IV unfractionated heparin. 15 minutes later, her blood pressure drops to 80 on 40. The interventional cardiologist at the tertiary care center is paged, and a decision is made at that time to stabilize the patient before transfer. The internal medicine specialist on call at the community hospitals consulted for assistance with the patient's care. The patient's given a bolus of 250 cc's of normal saline and is started on a dobutamine drip. The blood pressure improves and the patient is transferred about 100 minutes after the arrival in the community hospital. And the patient's placed onto the cath table. As she's placed onto the cath table, she has a V-fib arrest, is shocked several times, but is unable to be resuscitated. One of the key features of this case is that the patient had ST elevation in AVR on their ECG with diffuse ST depressions in most of the other leads. What is the significance of ST elevation in AVR? Can you review that for us? 
Uh, sure. So in the setting of uh, this patient, so an acute coronary syndrome, ST elevation in lead AVR suggests uh, left main or truncal disease, so a very proximal block. And uh, in this case, also carries a worse prognosis. So these people, we expect to do worse in terms of their mortality long-term and short-term. And uh, also is an indicator that we should be on the phone immediately to our interventional colleagues to assist with the management of this patient from a PCI perspective. If you take all comers with ST elevation in lead AVR, uh, there can be some alternate diagnoses that you want to th- consider, and uh, sometimes that will be an AV nodal reentrant tachycardia, such as WPW, can also have ST elevation lead AVR. Uh, patients with PE can also have ST elevation lead AVR. So there's some differentials there that you might want to consider. But in the presence of this patient, when they present with an ACS, you're concerned about left main disease. So this patient may have been saved, arguably, in retrospect, it's hard to say, but may have been saved if she was transferred for PCI, if she was on a STEMI protocol, and she was transferred right away from the community hospital, she could potentially have been saved. ST elevation in AVR with diffuse ST depression, as we know, is not on any STEMI protocols that I know of and isn't in the AHA guidelines for immediate transfer to patients to a cath lab. Do you think we should be incorporating this relatively rare but deadly scenario into our STEMI protocols, Dr. Pham? Uh, I think we should, and I've had several astute eMERGE docs look at this type of ECG and transfer them as a code STEMI, and they don't need to call me to make that decision. They should just make it, and if they want to call me after, let me know what's coming. I appreciate it. I mean, I I would treat this patient uh, as if they were having a STEMI, and they should have the same urgency of transfer. Now, high-risk non-STEMI patients, which you could call this patient, also do need urgent transfer. They don't need to stay in the emergency department and be stabilized. And uh, your mention of dobutamine would be really not the drug of choice. My own advice, and we can talk about this, at choice of press or inotrope, furcate cardiogenic shock should be exclusively levofed, so norepinephrine. There was a recent trial. This is a bit off topic, but it's important, I think, for you guys. There was a trial that looked at all causes of shock and randomized between dopamine and norepinephrine actually found in the subset of patients that cardiogenic shock is a mortality benefit with norepinephrine. And so if you're going to, and my own experience is the only drug that keeps them alive anyway, uh, dopamine is just going to make you more tachycardic, increase your oxygen demand and worsen the ischemia and cause more VT and VF. So from a practical point of view, if you want to get this patient out and alive, personally, I'd just put them on levofed to transfer them. So yes, this patient really, I'd give them 600 of clopidogrel and aspirin and heparin and just transfer them as a code STEMI. And you have a very short window of opportunity to treat these patients before they become so hypotensive, they get into the spiral of ischemia and hypotension, and then they arrest. And once these patients arrest, it's unlikely they're going to survive. Now, we have had uh, a handful of left main uh, STEMI cases come to us, and uh, there have been some really quite outstanding saves in this program where... Without a rapid transfer protocol, these patients wouldn't have made it. Now, I'd be interested to hear from the emerged physicians whether you thrombolyze such a patient in the absence of indication. In our setting, as I mentioned, we send all of our MIs to the PCI lab. So this would be in conjunction. I mean, I'd be on the phone right away to our interventional cardiologist who's two hours away and say, look, I'm concerned this is left main. If you want, I'll do the uh, pharmacoinvasive, which would be to give lytics and put them on the road. Because in these particular patients, I mean, 
Time is muscle, we know that, but in these patients, time is a lot of muscle because of such a proximal occlusion. So I would want to give this patient every benefit possible. So in my hands, uh, without talking to my interventional colleagues, I would say yes, I would thrombolyze this patient and I would send them for immediate transfer lights and sirens to the PCI lab. Yeah, it's interesting. I think Alma too talks about AVR elevation in, in this sort of setting and he generally says these patients should get PCI and not lytics and, you know, directly. But Dr. Menser, I mean, that sounds perfectly reasonable to me. You, you got a clot sitting there. It's gonna, if it's going to take you two hours to get to the PCI lab, I think it's perfectly reasonable to give lytic in this, Dr. Lutovsky. If you read the literature, if you run your practice only by the literature, you're not going to give the patient a thrombolytic. There's never been any proven benefit in any of the thrombolytic trials to patients in cardiogenic shock killed for. There's never been any benefit. And the only thing that helps them is, as Neil suggests, is getting them to a cath lab for urgent revascularization. And it can help, help dramatically. But, but having said that, in the real world, when someone's got chest pain, you, you know, I probably would elect to thrombolyze the patient too, pending a two-hour transfer to a center. I absolutely would. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't delay the transfer for a thrombolytic. I wouldn't delay the patient to give the patient to, you know, set up the TNK, you know, give it blah, blah, blah. I would absolutely not delay the transfer. I'd get the pa- this patient shipped out and not delay transfer to give a thrombolytic. Okay, so the literature so says for... For patients with cardiogenic shock, absolutely no benefit. benefit. Now, let's say this patient was not in cardiogenic shock, but had this ECG with ST elevation and ST depression, who was stable. Yeah, I'll just say that's who I was referring to. With these patients, all comers with left main disease, I would thrombolyze and send on. I completely agree with Dr. Latosky that the hypotensive patients in the literature don't show any benefit from lytics and... Having said that, when we get a GI bleed, we throw everything at them in the absence of evidence as well. So it's one of those, the literature supports this, and this is what we actually do, and those two things are different. So in the patient, whether in they're in cardiogenic shock or not, if there's going to be a two-hour transfer to PCI, you'd still give thrombolytic in patients with AVR elevation and diffuse ST depression. I'm saying if the patient's in cardiogenic shock, I'm transferring the patient immediately. That's right. what I'm saying. If the patient's non-cardiogenic shock, and if they're having an ST segment elevation, then the decision to give a thrombolytic or transfer really depends on, on several things. How long they've had pain, for example, uh, whether it, what their age is, for example, uh, what the door to balloon time you think is going to be at the, at the PCI center. Those are okay. important variables as well. Next, we're going to talk about lytics versus PCI for your run-of-the-mill STEMI. First, I'd like to review what the AHA guidelines say on this topic. The AHA guidelines say that while optimal fibrinolysis restores normal coronary flow in about 60% of patients, PCI is able to achieve restored flow in 90% of patients. The patency rates achieved with PCI translates into reduced mortality and reinfarction rates as compared to fibrinolytic therapy. This benefits even greater in patients presenting in cardiogenic shock. In terms of deciding whether to give lytics immediately or to transfer immediately to PCI, there are a few factors that need to be taken into consideration. The HA guidelines say that fibrinolysis is generally preferred if the patient is an early presenter, that is within three hours of symptom onset, if medical contact to balloon or door to balloon time is greater than 90 minutes, or if the door to balloon time minus the door to needle time 
is greater than one hour. In other words, if the time it takes from when the patient hits the door to get PCI, if that time minus the time that it would take for the patient to hit the door to get thrombolytics is greater than an hour, then you should consider giving lytic. And then, of course, you need to consider the contraindications to lytics. So that's all about when lytics are generally preferred. On the other hand, an invasive strategy with PCI is generally preferred for late presenters, that is, the symptom onset is greater than three hours. If there's a medical contact to balloon or door to balloon time less than 90 minutes, if the door to balloon time minus the door to needle time is less than an hour, if there's any contraindications to fibrinolysis, including increased risk of bleeding and intracranial hemorrhage, if the patient is in cardiogenic shock, or if the diagnosis of STEMI is in doubt. These are some of the situations in which an invasive strategy with PCI is generally preferred over lytics. Dr. Pham, Litovsky, and Menser are now going to discuss some of these issues around lytics versus PCI. And the nice thing about this discussion is that Dr. Pham works in a tertiary care center where PCI is immediately available. Dr. Lutovsky works in a community hospital that's about a half hour from a PCI lab. And Dr. Menser works in a community hospital that's about two hours away from a PCI lab. So in the following discussion, we'll get some real-world expert opinion on helping you decide between lytics and PCI. Let's talk about what are the factors that you need to think about when deciding whether to thrombolize a patient or whether to send them to the cath lab for primary PCI. So this is a great uh, topic for discussion because, uh, as Eric was alluding to, what happens in, in this, it's multifactorial, so it's complicated. And uh, Pinto actually uh, presented an article, and this was referenced in the new 2010 AHA ACS guidelines. And what he looked at was, let's classify these patients by location of infarct. So is it anterior or non-anterior? Let's classify them by age. Are their age uh, over 65 or under age 65? And let's classify them by their time-related delay of symptoms. So did they present with more than two hours of symptoms or less than two hours of symptoms? And then what he says is that the times that are required for those patients that would benefit from fibrolytics versus those patients that would benefit from PCI are different dependent upon those three factors. So for instance, uh, an elderly patient over age 65 with an inferior MI, you have actually 180 minutes to get to PCI. And so there's a long sort of delay time to show that those patients would have just as much benefit by waiting the 180 minutes to go to PCI versus the young patient with an anterior MI, you have about 40 minutes. And so if you can't get to PCI in 40 minutes, you should give fibrinolytics in that patient population. So uh, the times actually vary dependent upon a multifactorial set of factors. And each individual community can take Pinto's article and say, well, for our community, we already know our transport time for our small community is going to be two hours door to balloon time. So let's factor that into Pinto's article and figure out what our protocol should be so that we can do, as Dr. Latowski suggested, uh, let's create some pre-printed orders so that there is no thought. You don't have to reinvent the wheel with every patient. You can just say in Huntsville or your community, this is what we should be doing with these patients. Now, practically speaking, is there, is there any way we can simplify that to time? 
Well, yeah, as Mark suggests, that we've known for 20 years that thrombolytics are very effective if given early. For example, if you give a, if you can give a thrombolytic within an hour of the onset of chest pain, the mortality, third day mortality, I think it's less than two percent, is like one point five percent. There was there was the original uh, Mighty trial or something done in nineteen ninety, and that we can understand that physiologically because it's a real fresh clot and lytics work when the clot is fresh. Uh, and there's some European trials comparing pre-hospital thrombolytics versus PCI. There was a Kaplan trial. There was a Prig two trial that showed no difference in thrombolytic treated patients versus PCI-treated patients if the chest pain was less than two hours. And the only benefit in those trials were patients having chest pain for more than two or three hours when the benefit of PCI was substantial. And that's why a lot of communities, for example, in Nova Scotia, their whole revascularization strategy revolved around asking the patients in the ambulance, how long has your pain been? Because the pain has been two hours or less, they, those patients were given a pre-hospital thrombolytic. If the pain was long than three hours, they took them straight to the cath lab. So the time of the symptoms is a really important critical determinant for some communities that don't have an automatic bypass or straight to PCI strategy. So late presenters, more than three hours, PCI. Probably beneficial. And then less than three hours. You have an option. You have an option. Correct. And then you have to weigh in how long it's going to take them to get to the lab. Correct. And we have more options now since the transfer trial. Right. Because now... That went up to six hours. Exactly. Because now you have an option in smaller towns that don't have immediate access to PCI. Well, we can. it's safe to thrombolyze these people and transfer them with six hours, and then they can get to the cath lab with superior results compared to patients who have just a conserved therapy or traditional therapy of just thrombolytic alone. So let's talk specifically about the transfer MI trial. We've talked about when we might want to consider thrombolysis, and we've talked about when you want to consider immediate PCI. Can you just review for us what the transfer MI trial findings were and in what situation you would give lytic and then transfer for PCI within six hours? The uh, transfer AMI study was the, the, the principal investigator was Warren Cantor out of uh, Newmarket, Southlake. And uh, what they looked at was uh, high-risk ST elevation MI patients who presented within 12 hours of symptom onset. They wanted to ex- specifically exclude those patients that were in cardiogenic shock. And uh, they looked at getting about 1,000 patients in terms of the N of the study. They gave them essentially full-dose TNK with heparin and then transferred within six hours for angioplasty PCI. And what they were specifically trying to do was look at the benefit, and it was a composite primary endpoint, a 30-day death, reinfarction, CHF, uh, severe recurrent ischemia or shock. And there was overall a benefit in those patients who received thrombolytics and then got transferred for PCI within six hours of their presentation to the original eMERGE that they presented to, okay? So, for instance, uh, our site was part of this trial, and um, we actually found great benefit for these patients because they got their lytics and they got on the road. And from Huntsville to Newmarket, our door to their balloon time was in the area of three to four hours. And of course, they got all the adjunctive therapy. There was overall benefit for those patients that went for PCI within six hours versus those who would stay in Huntsville. So they got lytics, but they stayed. And then they only got PCI as rescue. So if they had unremitting pain, had recurrent pain, reinfarction the next day or within two days, they actually had two weeks to get PCI as a rescue PCI. When they compared those two groups versus... Uh, so stay versus go, the people that went for PCI 
did better overall. I think the advantage of that trial is that you're getting the patient a prompt rescue in the case that they fail. And, you know, about a third of patients will fail to reperfuse clinically. So it's a practical point that you can arrange the transfer before finding out if they're going to fail, or you can arrange it after when they start to go down the tubes. The theory behind this was that in all comers who you give thrombolytics to, that will open the infarct-related vessel about 60% of the time, which means that 40% of the time it does not open the infarct-related vessel, and we don't know who they are or who they're going to be, so we send them all down for PCI, and by the time they get down there, meaning that you're using that time for the lytic to work, and then by the time they get their vessels looked at in the PCI lab, you can tell whether that infarct-related vessel is open or not, and then deal with it appropriately at that time. The change we've seen in the City of Toronto in the last three years is that we now have a rapid transfer protocol through Toronto EMS where patients are guaranteed to be transferred out of the ED within 15 minutes of you activating a code STEMI. And there was previously, I think, a bit of pessimism that it would be possible in a city the size of Toronto with gridlock, et cetera, to have rapid transfer and good daughter balloon times. But in the City of Toronto, we've actually seen excellent results. It can be done as long as the transfer is going to be rapid. Now, the controversy, of course, is the young patient who presents early with the anterior body has no risk for bleeding. Should they get lytic or should they get PCI? And I completely agree with the Pinto analysis that you really have to have pretty rapid transfer in order balloon time to equal lytic. And there is a trial underway right now called the STREAM trial to test exactly in those patients which is the better strategy. And I think they're using not only lytic but pre-hospital lytic which I think is an advantage. Now in Toronto, pre-hospital has never gotten off the ground because of the complexities of having physician oversight over paramedics' decision-making. But should that trial be positive, then we may be changing our protocols yet again. And in Toronto, at least with the STEMI program that we have, we try to keep it very simple and follow the KISS principle, which is keep it simple, stupid, in STEMI, because we know time is muscle and we want to get them treated quickly. Yeah, And I think if we were to put a Pinto analysis into an algorithm on your standardized orders, it's going to lead to delays and we're going to go back to where we were, say, five, ten years ago, where you have to call the cardiologist to make a decision about lytic versus PCI, which is not the right thing to do. So thrombolytics certainly aren't dead. And it's not a bad treatment for patients who have a short duration of chest pain. It's an excellent treatment for a lot of patients. And then they can be transferred to a center if, they, if it's a high-risk infarct. That's a very reasonable, rational approach. Number needed to treat 19. Not bad. So we've talked about PCI versus thrombolysis and transferring patients after thrombolysis for PCI for STEMI. How about non-STEMI and high-risk unstable angina? In these patients, there's two possible strategies. Either routine invasive strategy where all the patients undergo coronary angiography shortly after admission, and if indicated, they get coronary revascularization, or a conservative strategy where medical therapy alone is used initially with selection of patients for angiography based on their clinical symptoms or any investigational evidence of persistent myocardial ischemia. The first strategy, the routine invasive strategy, I've heard is quite commonplace in the in the U.S. Some people argue that they're overdoing it a bit, just sending every non-STEMI right to uh, to to get a cath. What do we do here in Canada, and what should we be doing according to what the literature says? Mm-hmm. I think that the routine invasive approach is also being used more and more in Canada. I think it's appropriate. 
particularly in the higher risk ACS patient. So obviously uh, the patient who's got hemodynamic instability and heart failure, it's, clear, it's a no-brainer that they should be going to the cath lab. But the patient who comes in with chest pain that's easily relieved by nitro or morphine, their STs are down, then they're back to normal and the troponin is slightly elevated. That patient has, for the most part, been shown to derive benefit with an early invasive approach. Now, I think the timing of treatment is one thing which we didn't know until recently. So the American trials had suggested you should do it within 24 hours, have a look at their coronaries. A more recent trial called TIMAX looked at early versus delayed, delayed being, say, more than 48 hours, and showed there really was no difference between the two strategies, and that if this scenario was a Friday afternoon scenario, or should you bring them into the cath lab on Saturday, or can you wait till Monday? And for the most part, the patients who are in the highest risk, and like the ones we've discussed, are the ones that derive the benefit. And what is the benefit? It's not mortality benefit. It's merely re reducing reinfarction and recurrent ischemia. There is no mortality benefit with early invasive approach for non-STEMI or unstable angina, unlike in STEMI. But if, if you can prevent reinfarction, you can prevent recurrent ischemia and shorten their length of stay, and then I think overall you've, you've given them a benefit. Now, some people would advocate a conservative approach. I think it's appropriate for the patient who's got a negative troponin, who had pretty low risk looking ECG, you could elect to risk stratify them with a perfusion scan or a stress echo in hospital and only cath them should it be high risk. I think that's a reasonable approach. From the emergency medicine perspective, you, you just have to identify the patient that you really should try to transfer out of your emergency department to a cath center, the non-STEMI patient. So we're talking about the patient who is having dynamic ECG changes, you know, ongoing pain, and uh, you know, high troponin. That's you know, that's a really high risk ACS patient. That patient should be transferred out, and not you know, routinely admitted for antiplatelet, antithrombotic, you know, conservative strategy. So it's key for the institution to identify even high risk ACS non-STEMI patients. Let's move on to case four. In case four, we'll talk about low-risk chest pain patient and disposition decisions. Case four is that of a 53-year-old woman who works in your hospital as a respiratory therapist. She presents to your ED with a 24-hour history of intermittent left-sided chest pain that lasts for about five to 10 minutes. It's not associated with any particular activity or position, and she's never had this pain in the past. She describes the pain as sharp, and rates it as a 5 out of 10 in severity. There's no radiation of the pain, no associated symptoms except for some occasional slight nausea. She denies shortness of breath, dizziness, sweating, fever, cough, abdominal pain, rash, or neurological symptoms. She's normally quite active, but doesn't have a regular exercise routine. She has a history of well-controlled hypertension on a calcium channel blocker, and no other traditional or non-traditional cardiac risk factors, and no thromboembolic risk factors. On exam, she appears calm with normal vital signs. Her cardiovascular and respiratory exams are normal. She has no chest wall tenderness and no rash. An ECG is done, which shows normal sinus rhythm and no significant ST changes. Chest X-ray is negative. She's given ASA 160 milligrams to chew, has one episode of chest pain lasting five minutes in the ED with a normal repeat ECG, and she has two sets of troponin six hours apart that are non-detectable. So Dr. Lotovsky, here we've got a low-risk patient whose ED workup is negative for MI, 
Now you have to make a decision. Should the patient go home to follow up with their family doctor? Should they go home with an early stress test and a cardiology clinic follow-up? Should they stay in a CDU in the hospital and get stressed before they get discharged? Or should they be admitted to the cardiologist? You know, dis despite my yearning to tell our listeners that a Canadian invention, the Vancouver chest pain rule, which says that patients less than 40 with no coronary disease and a normal ECG, and patients that are over 40 with another list of criteria are at such low risk that it's good enough to determine they're safely discharged from the emergency doctor. Unfortunately, the Vancouver chest pain rule, neither nor any other rule, is really good enough to get our miss rates uh, low enough to an acceptably uh, low level. So for low-risk chest pain patients who have been worked up in the ED with a normal ECG, two sets of normal troponins, their chance of a significant event within 30 days is extremely low. How do you decide? It's we low, but it's not zero, point number one. And point number two, those rules will only apply to patients with a, with a single episode of chest pain. You're describing a very different kind of a patient. You're describing the patients with frequent episodes of chest pain, off and off, 24 hours, off and off. So if you have a, a next suspicion that this patient uh, either has a likely acute coronary syndrome or a possible acute coronary syndrome, you're going to treat this patient very different from the patient who just had an hour of chest pain and is pain-free now, in which case a, a strategy of two sets of enzymes and hope for follow-up a stress test may be appropriate. That strategy would not be appropriate for this patient who's having repeated chest pains because this patient would be a higher risk just by the history alone if the patient is having concurrent syndrome. So this is not the kind of patient I would send home, no matter if the troponin is negative or the initial ECG is negative. If I have, if I have a high index suspicion, this is the type of patient that I would admit for an in-hospital in evaluation. And so where is your threshold there for determining whether a patient should be discharged or not. Do you use things like the Timmy score? So I do use the Timmy decide? score. I, I, I use Gestalt, but I use the Timmy score as well. But, but it, it, you have to understand that Laura's chest pain is a patient with no past history of coronary disease, not on aspirin, not on medical therapy, who has a single episode of chest pain resolved now with a normal ECG, in which case a strategy of two sets of enzymes and then an outpatient workup may be appropriate. The Timmy score was originally used to determine for those patients who had confirmed ACS what their prognosis would be. The Timmy score uses clinical data to predict the short-term risk of acute myocardial infarction, coronary revascularization, or death from any cause. In the Canadian Medical Association Journal in 2010, there was a paper called Diagnostic Accuracy of the Timmy score in patients with chest pain in the emergency department a meta-analysis. And this looked at patients with chest pain in the emergency department who were undifferentiated, and they assessed its prognostic accuracy in patients in the emergency department with potential ACS. Their conclusion was that although the Timmy score is effective in risk stratification for patients in the emergency department with potential ACS, it shouldn't be used as the sole means of determining patient disposition. And just to review what the Timmy score is, it consists of seven variables, age over 65, at least three traditional coronary disease risk factors, prior coronary stenosis of greater than 50%, ST deviation on the ECG of more than 0.5 millimeters, two or more anginal equivalents in the last 24 hours, 
the use of ASA in the last seven days, and elevated troponin. It's important to note that those with a TIMI score of zero still have about a 2% chance of a major ischemic complication in 30 days. Dr. Lutovsky is now going to point out some of the limitations of the TIMI score. One of the variables is troponin. If the only positive was a positive troponin, and so the TIMI risk for it theoretically would be one, which would, which would theoretically, by the numbers, give them a low risk of having an adverse event in the next 14 days, 30 days. But in practice, we know that a positive troponin is, in fact, a high significant marker for high-risk disease. And you wouldn't ever send somebody home with chest pain and a positive troponin. So that's the limitation of the TIMI score. So this brings up the idea of a standard miss rate. You know, what miss rate are we willing to accept for ACS? Since it's unrealistic to work up and admit every single patient with chest pain or chest pain equivalent will inevitably miss a certain small percentage of MIs, what should our standard miss rate be? And how can we balance this against over-testing and getting too many false positive results? The risk-benefit ratio for testing, we've already talked about provocative testing in terms of exercise stress test and how good or not so good that is. Uh, and then moving on to uh, other issues with actually looking at the coronary arteries and how much radiation is associated with that. And so there was a recent, uh, in the last month or two, CMAJ article on radiation associated with PCI. And there's a, it's a not insignificant amount of harm that can come from lifetime risk of fatal cancer related to that radiation that's received. So it's a consideration and represents harm. I'm not sure how big the harm is. Let's say it's 0.5 in 1,000. So you have to balance that against what you're going to send all these patients through to, meaning that some of them that have the equivocal exercise stress test may go on to have angiograms done, which may go on to further subsequent procedures or at least put the patient at risk for harm. And, and so we have to balance the miss rate with over-investigation. It's unknown what the appropriate miss rate should be as low as possible, ideally. The only way to have a miss rate of zero is to admit everyone and cath everyone, but then you're going to expose them to the risks of invasive procedures. So I think in the end, we just have to be reliant on our clinical acumen and, in addition, have some mechanism for very early rapid follow-up with cardiologist consultation with stress testing. So there needs to be a sort of outpatient safety net for those patients. Okay, so for those patients who you've decided to send home for follow-up in a cardiology clinic or to get stress tested. We've got many different options. The patient can have a stress echo, they can have a CT angiogram, they can have a treadmill test, they can have a, a nuclear stress test. What are the advantages and disadvantages of all these different tests and what should we be trying to set up for our patients from the emergency department? Mm -hmm. So from a practical point of view, you'd like to see these patients within 48 to 72 hours. The only test you're going to get reliably is a treadmill ECG stress test, which has a limited diagnostic accuracy but is readily available. And I think uh, having that in conjunction with a cardiologist uh, a consultation will hopefully be able to screen patients who need either invasive testing or more advanced testing such as perfusion scans and stress echoes. You know, perfusion scan or stress echo would be great, but it's very hard to organize those rapidly. CT coronary angiogram have excellent negative predictive value, and there are some studies showing that it's a nice rule-out test if you can obtain it in the ED, because it'll rule out ACS 
aortic dissection and PE, which we've discussed as being the life-threatening things you want to exclude, but is really not, from an outpatient point of view, readily available at all. Nor is it appropriate because of the radiation risk, particularly in a younger woman. You'd like to avoid that test. My understanding with the CT angiography is that it's appropriate for patients who are at moderate risk. For the patients who are really at high risk, it's not as useful. And the patients who are at very low risk, you can get false positives. That's true. I mean, the sensitivity of a CT coronary angiogram is very high. So it's an excellent rule-out test where if patients had some equivocal symptoms, equivocal stress testing, you don't want to expose them to the risk of the invasive angiogram. You want to reassure them and yourself. They're not extremely young, so the risk from the radiation is not very high. Lifetime, I think that's the appropriate patient. It's not very specific, so if your pretest probability is high and the history is consistent and they're on medication and they're still having symptoms, they should just proceed to angiography because in that setting, you make a diagnosis and you have an opportunity to treat it at the same time. And then overall radiation exposure will be less. In, in many U.S. hospitals, they have uh, chest pain observation units where they admit the patient to this observation unit. They do serial troponins and they might do provocative t testing. In some centers in Canada, we have a similar sort of thing. Do you think we should be having these chest pain observation units or CDUs in Canada? Would that help with minimizing our, uh, our miss rate for ACS? So it might uh, facilitate obtaining provocative testing if you include it in, the, in a specific chest pain unit. Having said that, I don't think that there's any uh, benefit in terms of morbidity and mortality outcome measures. So it, as a convenience factor, sure, that might facilitate processes within the hospital. So while there's no direct evidence that these CDUs or chest pain observation units actually reduce adverse cardiovascular outcomes or mortality, they will get you that stress test that you need sooner than as an outpatient. I guess you have to weigh that against the cost of staffing these units, which I understand is substantial. We have taken some patients from the ED during the daytime up to the stress lab to stress them, basically doing the same thing and then discharging them. And it's a very time efficient thing to do. They don't become inpatients. As soon as you become an inpatient, there's huge costs to the system. And mm. uh, they still remain outpatients and then uh, uh, the patient is effectively triaged on the spot. Right. I think we should be doing more and more of that in Canada. I don't think we do enough of that is, is getting the patient stressed the day that, they, that they're seen in the emergency department. That's really ideal. I think the impression that you have in the ED is that the treadmill ECG is somehow hard to get, but it's extremely easy to get for the most part. I would say the system for the most part is not operating at maximum capacity. Perfusion scans, stress echoes, all this other stuff, CT scans take a long time in comparison. We have emerge yeah. slots for ultrasounds and CTs right. Why not day? do it for provocative testing? Why not do it for provocative testing? I agree testing? 100%. I think that's a great idea and would facilitate management of these patients in, in a much better sense and, and allow earlier triage, which would then allow earlier referral on to the next step. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I think that's a great idea and something that we should propose to our eMERGE colleagues. Okay. And I just want to make the distinction here. We talked earlier about having a negative stress test and how that can change your pretest probability of a patient who presents after a negative stress test with chest pain or an anginal equivalent to the emergency department, how it changes your pretest probably a little bit, but you can't hang your hat on the negative stress test. 
Now, for patients who you're working up for ACS and you said for a stress test, how good is a treadmill stress test at ruling out cardiac disease in a low-risk chest pain patient who has been seen in the emergency department? So unfortunately, the, the sensitivity is only about 70%, 65, 70%. So it's not great, but it is re- readily available. And I think combined with a good history and physical, if the patient can go 10 minutes on a treadmill, have no symptoms and no ECG changes, the chances they're going to go on an infarct in the next week or so are low, but not zero. Now, it's the patients who are equivocal with respect to their symptom or ECG response that they're going to then refer on for further testing. And it's usually going to be either a perfusion scan or a stress echo. If they have a high-risk stress ECG, they get admitted and they have the angiogram. And actually, there been a few of those recently at St. Mike's. We have a low-risk chest pain clinic at, at Credit Valley where our patients have a stress test within 24, 48 hours, but sometimes it's 72 hours just because of demand. And, you know, that's okay too. That What I don't like is if the wait times start to get four or five days, then, you know, they open up some more spots. And certainly beyond that is, is probably not uh, good care. So just one last question then. What do you see in the near future that will change how we approach patients with ACS? One of the things we have to do is educate our public better about the early warning signs of acute myocardial infarction. You know, you, you watch TV and you see all these ads uh, sponsored by the government about s- patients who may have a stroke. If you have any signs of dizziness, get yourself to an emergency department. This is for a disease that we have very few therapeutic options for, right? A patient who has dizziness who may have a stroke is not a candidate for a thrombolytic anyways. But we put ads on TV. If you have some dizziness or feel a little fuzzy, get yourself to an emergency department. But we don't have ads about chest pain, getting yourself to the emergency department on a timely basis. And most patients who present with STEMI don't come any earlier than about three hours from the onset of their chest pain. And if we could do a little bit better job of getting those patients to the emergency department 30 minutes earlier or 60 minutes earlier, time is muscle. And I think we could really reduce morbidity significantly more if we can get our, you know, our time to reperfusion down. Just so much you can do if the patient's been at home for four hours with their chest pain, right? They've, they've already infarcted. Uh, that's a problem. So if we could do something to educate the public when they need to get to emergency department, we would be doing a great public service. A couple other things in terms of future developments. There's something on the horizon that Jeff Klein is developing called Pretest Consult ACS. Jeff Klein is one of the gurus of thromboembolic disease ED research who came up with the PERC rule, for example. He's developed a computer-derived quantitative pretest probability assessment for ACS as well as PE. And what it does is it matches an eight-component clinical profile of any individual patient considered at risk for ACS with a prior reference database of about 15,000 patients to allow an estimate of pretest probability. So far, it's found that those patients with a pretest probability of 2% or less have a 45-day ACS outcome of only 0.3%. This still needs prospective validation, but if this all pans out, I think this will go a long way in helping us with disposition decisions for our chest pain patients. The one last really neat thing that's on the horizon is something called sonothrombolysis. This is an approach toward improving vessel patency using low-frequency ultrasound for clot busting. 
It's cool because it's a non-invasive route to improve the vessel patency with thrombolytic therapy in a large majority of patients that are unable to access timely PCI. So Dr. Menser, for example, who lives in Huntsville, which is about two hours away from any PCI center, may in a few years be using sonothrombolysis instead of IVTNK for his STEMI patients. So that about wraps it up for this month's episode. Thanks so much to Dr. Latovsky, Dr. Pham, and Dr. Menser for their incredible insights. It's a pleasure to be here again. Thanks, Anton. Yeah, appreciate thanks it. for a great discussion. Thank you. That was fun. And until next time, take it easy.